Well, it's great to be back with you this morning. Our family uh, was in the Reno area the last two Sundays, and we bring greetings from Dayspring Church. Um, you may not have heard of Dayspring Church before, but you might have heard of Jason and Naomi Ching. They're uh, former interns at GBC, lived in the building with us, and then they were a part of the church where Brian Borgman is in Minden, Grace Community Church. And then uh, during 2020, the strategic time to plant a church, right? They, uh, they planted a church in Reno, and it's uh, doing well. There are 80, 90 people there. They send you greetings. It's such, it was such a blessing to be there and to be with them because from the day I met Jason and Naomi, which was actually part of that involved a fellowship meal upstairs, uh, they were saying, Reno needs churches. And it's amazing to see a church now in that area and the Lord um, extending his grace um, that way. And so GBC plays a key part in that. And so it's, it's just a blessing. But very good to be home. And uh, looking forward to continuing um, our series on the parables. We'll be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 25. If you'd like to turn there now, you, you may. It's on page 830 in the Pew Bible. You can also find the text we'll be talking about printed there on page 8. I'm not sure if I'm the only one who experiences this. I'm probably not, so that's why I'll talk about it. But I have some recurring, reoccurring dreams in my life. There are about three of them that seem to just kind of pop up here and there. And uh, one of them involves a similar storyline of being in some kind of a church setting. Usually it's this weird uh, comp- compilation of various churches I've been in. It's never just one. And I realize in the course of talking to people that I'm supposed to be preaching very soon, and I'm completely unprepared. And it is, oh, it's the most miserable experience. I, <laughs> it just goes on and on. And, and in it, it just seems like it goes on forever where I'm talking to people, trying to figure out if they know what I'm supposed to preach about. And, and as they're talking to me, I'm thinking in my head, how am I not prepared for this? What, what have I been doing? What was I doing last night? Why am I here and don't know what I'm supposed to be saying? And it, the feeling of unpreparedness, <laughs> of not being ready, it's an agonizing feeling, isn't it? We can feel it on all kinds of levels. And I feel it acutely in those dreams. And I'm so thankful when I wake up and realize usually I still have a few more days to prepare before doing this. Uh, and so it, it makes sure that I do. Maybe it's God's way of saying, uh, keep working on your sermon. I don't know. But whatever it is, there are many situations in life to be prepared for, not just public speaking, right? Not just delivering a sermon. Uh, But we want to make sure that in life we are ready for the most important things. And our parable this morning, uh, in it, Jesus gives us a picture of kingdom realities, of, of what the kingdom of heaven, of what life with God is like. And in giving us this picture, he wants us to not be caught unprepared in what matters most. And so we will see that as we look at this parable this morning. And so let me read it for us, and then we will consider it together. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider this text this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come as weak and needy people. We come as those who desperately need you to strengthen our faith, to give us eyes and ears of understanding, to soften our hearts to your truth, to warm our hearts and fill us with joy over the wonder of the kingdom that the Lord Jesus has brought to us through his life, death, and resurrection. Will you meet us in the various needs that we have, whether that is to be humbled and repent, whether that's to be encouraged and strengthened, whether that's to be filled with joy over the wonder of your love. May you meet us with exactly what we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll consider this story in three parts. Um, First, we'll consider the kingdom story, and we'll just kind of walk through what it's talking about. Second, we'll see kingdom delay, and then finally we'll consider kingdom readiness. So the kingdom story, kingdom delay, and kingdom readiness. Well, first, let's consider this story of the kingdom that gives us a picture of an aspect of life with God. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Jesus is really a master storyteller on so many levels, and we find ourselves immediately as we read it just just captivated, brought in, and I think filled with questions, right? (laughs) When we read this, it's a little different. And what's immediately obvious to us is that this story depends on wedding traditions that are a little bit different than ours. Uh, Ladies, when was the last time that you were invited to a wedding and you're, you're headed out and you thought, okay, I've got my dress, um, I have my keys, my phone, my purse, I've got my gift. Oh, where did I put that lamp? And how am I going to take this oil? Uh, It's a little different, right, than what we're typically used to. But in Jesus' day, this was what they did. And so we need to think for a few moments to understand as best as we can uh, what he was getting at here. As far as we can tell, the basic flow of a wedding was this. The couple would become betrothed, which is more committed than our engagement. It's legally binding. You had to get a divorce in order to break it. But during that betrothal, the young woman would typically continue to live in her father's home until the wedding. And then the groom would typically go back to his family's house to prepare a place for them or preparing a house of their own. And then on the day of the wedding, the groom would come to the bride's home. 
And this would usually begin as we're nearing the evening, dinner time, when things are cooling down. Summer is wedding season, right? And it's very hot in the Middle East. And so um, this would typically take place even later in the day as it's starting. There'd be a ceremony there at the bride's home, and then there would be a meal there to celebrate the wedding. Then the groom would take his bride, and she'd usually be seated on an animal of some sort and surrounded by companions, and they, through the night, would make their way through the village to the bride's house, and or to the groom's house, sorry, it already took place at the bride's house. We're going now to the groom's house, and when they arrived at the groom's house, that's where the party would start. That's where the wedding banquet would begin, a a festival lasting multiple days of celebration of that wedding, this wedding banquet that would extend for days on end. And so that's kind of the picture of what's taking place here. Now, in this parable, there is debate about which house this is kind of taking place at. Is this the groom going to meet his bride, or is this the groom coming with his bride for the banquet? I think the evidence leans a little bit towards the latter, that it's coming back for that final wedding banquet and celebration. Either way, the point works, um, but it's just something that scholars love to write and think about. What's important to know in this is who the characters are and what is going on. One of the things that's just interesting as a side note is we never hear about the bride. And we may say, that's strange. I think she's just assumed to be in this, accompanying the groom. Uh, But the focus is really on these ten virgins who go out to meet the bridegroom. That term there that's translated virgins simply means that they were unmarried women of marriable age. So they were old enough to be married, but they were not yet married. Beyond that, we don't know a whole lot. Some kind of think of this as they were part of, you know, they were maids of honor or part of the bridal party. But I, I think that's reading too much into it. There's, there's nothing about the story that gives us that. What we find is they knew about the wedding, and it seems they'd been invited to the banquet. And so they make preparations and go out and they wait for the groom to arrive. So I think overall, this makes sense to us. It's, it's a little different than we're used to, but understandable. But what about the lamps? It's kind of interesting, doesn't it? Your Bible may have a footnote. The ESV has a little note there that says that these could be translated torches. Um, we're not really sure, but what we do know is this isn't your typical word for the lamps that would light a whole house. Many think that these were torches that had rags wrapped around them that were soaked in oil, but they could have been small lamps. And we may hear this and think, okay, that's kind of strange. Um, if, if they don't have enough oil, that's not really that big of a deal. Just stay close to someone who has enough light and you'll be okay. Um, while darkness was definitely a factor in these events, they didn't have electric lights and you're celebrating into the night, um, this isn't simply a pragmatic issue. Having these lamps was a cultural part of the ceremony. It was essential for these ladies to have these lights. If you didn't have the lamp, it would show that you weren't prepared for the wedding. We know that in Middle East context, back in Jesus' day, it was essential for ladies to use lamps when traveling at night. This was for their protection 
And it was also for the protection of their reputation. So people could see who they were with and um, they could know where they had gone. Ken Bailey, who is a missionary or was a missionary for many years in peasant villages in the Middle East, says that one thing that he noticed as ladies were carrying around lamps is that they didn't typically hold them near to the ground, like we would think of a flashlight kind of lighting your path. They were often held much closer to their faces because, again, they wanted it to light their face so that everyone knew who they were and where they were going. And so lit lamps were part of the cultural expectation of what was needed to attend a wedding banquet. And having a lit lamp said something about how they viewed the wedding itself. You know, if we think of dress code for weddings, as soon as I say that, I find that to be a comical thing to say in California because anytime I ask somebody, they say, whatever you want. Uh, And so even though our expectations for dress in weddings are relatively loose here in Southern California, we can still understand the idea that, that we're getting at here. Imagine that you've been invited to a black tie fancy wedding in some fancy area, maybe in Del Mar. And you come in from out of town and you're excited to go to Southern California for a little bit of surfing and hiking, but you realize in the course of it that you forgot to bring your tux or your gown and you show up to a wedding like that in your surf attire or hiking shoes. What does that tell the bride and the groom. How significant was the wedding really to you if you show up that unprepared? Well, that's the kind of feel that's happening here with these ladies not being ready to have lamps that were lit when the party began. And so this also helps us understand then some of the women's refusal to give their oil. The five wise women don't share their oil with the others. Now, some debate the ethics of this story, right? Shouldn't they have been Christians and shared their oil? Um, And kids, before you think, oh, here's a parable that says, I don't need to share my toys with my siblings, um, let me just stop us all there. It's important to remember that no one parable teaches every aspect of the kingdom, does it? This parable isn't illustrating how to live according to the golden rule or how Christians are supposed to use their possessions. Jesus is telling this parable about being ready for the groom. And so in telling that, Jesus says that in light of the significance of having a lit lamp at the wedding, these ladies' response is wise. If they had shared their oil, then none of them would have had enough that their lamps would be lit when they needed to be when they actually were able to be with the bridegroom in the wedding banquet. And so, so we consider those details, and there's all kinds of other things we can ponder, but that that really brings us to the main point, which is relatively plain. Jesus is telling this story to encourage his followers to make wise preparations, to be sure that they have enough oil so that you are ready for and can enter the banquet when the groom arrives. That's really what the story is seeking to tell. Well, we know that Jesus gives this parable to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, what life with God that has begun now with the coming of Jesus is like for us as believers. And so 
what are we to learn from this? What pictures is he giving us? Well, that brings us to our second point, which is kingdom delay. Kingdom delay. The story of this parable depends upon the delay of the groom. It is the fact that it took the groom a while to get there. And I think to get from the bride's house to where the banquet begins. It's the fact that that took so long that it creates this tension of not having enough oil to be with him when he arrives. And so we see that one of the things that Jesus really wants his followers to know is that delay is part of the experience of his kingdom. That uncertainty of delay is part of what we will experience as his followers. Delay is a common theme in Jesus' stories, isn't it? Many of the stories that he tells have a time between the beginning and the fruition of the end. The sower scatters seed, but it takes a while before we know what kind of plants are going to grow up. The mustard seed and the leaven, it it takes time before we have the tree or the loaves of bread. The stewards are going about their duties for some time while the master is away. And so being a part of God's kingdom will involve waiting. And in particular, it's waiting between his first coming and his second coming. Waiting between the arrival of the kingdom and the fullness of the kingdom when the Lord Jesus returns. And we don't know how long this delay will be. It's an uncertain delay. In the parable before this, the faithful servants, the master returns more quickly than expected, and it catches some of the it catches the foolish servants off guard. And so we have this warning: don't presume upon the delay. The master could come at any time. And yet in other stories like this one, the delay is longer than expected. And the call is not to give up in the midst of this ongoing delay, but instead to be prepared. And so as followers of Jesus, we realize that part of this kingdom life is this experience, this feeling of unknown delay. We don't really like waiting, do we? (laughs) I was thinking about it the past few weeks, and I've met thrill seekers. I have yet to meet a wait seeker. I'm still waiting to meet someone who comes up and says, you know what I seek out most in life? Putting, in my, putting myself in situations where I may have to wait and I have no idea how long. And I just go from one to another. Oh, it feels so good. That's different than a slower pace of life, right? The unexpected, unknown wait is something that typically we recoil against. But what difference then does it make, as those who typically don't like to wait, what difference does it make for us to understand that part of walking with Jesus means there will be this unknown delay and this unknown wait? Well, I think it helps us understand two things about wisely following Jesus. One, we're not supposed to figure out the timing. It is not our job to spend time trying to figure out the timing of when Jesus will arrive. Jesus closes this saying, we don't know the day or hour. Jesus in other places says, no one knows when 
that return will be. But no matter how many times Jesus said that, no matter how clearly he laid that out, for some reason we as believers are susceptible to this temptation to try and figure out the groom's ETA. It's like we think, if Jesus just knew about this thing called Google Maps, he could have told us, I'll be there in 2,100 years, 21 days, you know, whatever. He could give us the ETA. The point is not for us to figure out when he arrives. Part of the point that he makes here is that instead of making effort to be figuring out his ETA, the the thing that his followers, the wise followers are called to do is make sure that they have enough oil ready for when he arrives to focus instead on being prepared rather than the calculations of when he comes. And so wise kingdom living isn't figuring out the timing of his delay, which I can tell you from scripture, you'll never get it right. Instead, wise kingdom living is being prepared regardless of the timing of his return. And so we're not supposed to figure out the timing, but then secondly, we are supposed to adjust to his timing. We're supposed to adjust to his timing. One of the things that's interesting about this story is that there's nothing that these ladies could do that will get the groom to arrive there any faster. He is taking his time, celebrating the wedding. He knows what's coming, what awaits him, and he has his own agenda and his own prerogatives. They could go buy all the oil in the town. They could go pass out lamps to everybody, and it wouldn't speed up his arrival. Instead, the wise women accepted that his timing was his own, and their job was to be ready for it. And so part of what I think we need to fight against as followers of Jesus is this innate temptation impulse that we have deep down that says, let's get this party started. Now, it's good to long for the party, the celebration, the festivities of celebrating life with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But often what can creep into our hearts is this pressure that we put on ourselves and others that if somehow we could just do more kingdom stuff and we could just do it faster, then we could usher in that great time even sooner. If if I could just get my act together, if I could just change enough, then blessings would come quicker. Or if you could just accept the gospel sooner, then I won't have to move on to other people. Or if you could just change faster, then we could all enjoy a better life here and now. And what we find is when we don't respond quickly enough or when others don't respond quickly enough, we get impatient or we start to despair And we can kind of start to think implicitly, the Lord's never going to come if we just keep it up like this. Instead, Jesus shows us that wise kingdom living is saying, wait a minute, he has his timing. And what we are called to is faithfulness in the midst of the unknowns of his timing. Our focus is on living faithfully while we wait so that we're ready, which doesn't always mean everything is fixed, 
when he comes. And it's really this context then of waiting for the bridegroom that in this story reveals wisdom and folly. All throughout this parable, it's mentioned wisdom, wisdom, the wise and the foolish. And Jesus has been telling stories about wisdom and folly, especially in light of the end. But, but think about the picture that this parable gives. It's a group of ladies who are all headed to the same event, right? And they're all probably dressed up similarly. They're all getting ready. There weren't tons of options for different types of gowns back in Jesus' day. They all kind of look similar. And as the night wears on, they all fall asleep. And then they all wake up when they hear that the bridegroom is coming. But some were wise and some were foolish. And the delay is what revealed their wisdom and their folly. God has many reasons for his delay. And we can unpack what the scriptures have to say. But, but one of them is that it would make us wise as we seek to follow Jesus, even in the midst of the unknowns and even in the midst of the wait. This story exposes for us the, the folly that's often in our own hearts, that unpreparedness that we often run to, and it gives us opportunity to repent of the ways that we're not ready before the bridegroom arrives. And so what does it look like to live wisely in this delay? That really brings us to our third point, kingdom readiness. We've, we've talked about the kingdom delay, how that's part of the, the warp and woof of what it means to live a life waiting for Jesus' return. But what does it look like to be ready as we wait? One of the things that we see is Jesus shows that you must be personally prepared for his arrival. You must be personally prepared for his arrival. The wise women's response to the foolish ones is a bit startling, isn't it? I love that in verse 9. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Go get your own oil. (laughs) They just flat out say it there. And what it's showing us is they understood this, that being prepared to enter the banquet is not something that others can just take care of for you, is it? You must have the oil when the groom arrives. We can be tempted to think like the foolish ladies in this story. If we just surround ourselves with people who seem prepared, then we'll be all set. We may tell ourselves things like this. My parents are Christians. People in my family seem to take this God stuff seriously, so I'm sure I'm fine. Or my spouse prays enough for both of us or I give my money to good causes, or I've found a church that preaches and teaches the right doctrine, so I'm sure enough of it's going to rub off if I just show up. But see, when the bridegroom shows up and it's time for the banquet, the question will be, do you have what you need for the banquet with the bridegroom? But there's another layer to this that's crucial to make, to make sure we understand it rightly. Jesus not only shows you must be personally prepared, but he goes out of his way to say that this is about more than oil, isn't it? The part of this story that's most jarring 
and most unrealistic to the hearers is the end. As they're listening, they're thinking, yeah, yeah, this is like weddings I've been to. Okay, I get it. Oh, they don't have enough oil. That's a problem. But then the door is shut and the foolish women are asking to be let in and the groom answers through the door and he doesn't let them in because he says, I do not know you. They would say, wait a minute. This isn't how a normal wedding works. Normally a groom would know all who are invited. But Jesus gives these details to make this explicit point. Entrance into the banquet isn't ultimately a matter of have you done enough good works? Have you produced enough oil in and of yourself somehow? Entrance into the banquet is based upon the question, do you know the bridegroom? Those who truly know the bridegroom are the same ones who also have enough oil. It's another way really of saying what James will later say, that those who truly have faith will also have accompanying with that good works that are evidence of the fact that they know the wondrous grace of being united to the Lord Jesus. And so the question that this raises for all of us is, are, do you know the bridegroom? Do you know the bridegroom? Are you trusting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection alone for salvation? Do you believe that he is the one who will come again one day to right all wrongs, to make everything how it should be, and that those who are united to him in faith will receive the free grace of eternal life simply through faith in him? This parable invites you Turn to faith in the bridegroom, in Jesus alone, so that you can attend and participate and be ready for the banquet when he returns. But for those of us who say, yes, I know the bridegroom. I'm trusting in his work by faith. I am longing for his appearing. Then this parable is also a call to wait wisely. It's a call to show that kingdom readiness in the day-in and day-out Christian life. What do we know about kingdom readiness? This parable doesn't talk a lot about it per se, but I remember hearing talks about Jesus' return when I was growing up and, and as a young believer, and often being ready for Jesus' return sounded something like going up on a mountain somewhere and worshiping and watching the sky until he appeared. It sounded like something that was completely incompatible with what everyone else around me was going to do the next day when they woke up and went to work or went to school. And I always felt that tension of, wait a minute, how can being ready be something that's so incongruent with living the Christian life? But this isn't what Jesus and all of Scripture describe as readiness. I love the ordinariness of what takes place in this story in the sense that they go out to this event and the groom takes a while and what happens? They get tired and they fall asleep and they wake up. It's a normal thing, right? And both the wise and the foolish go through this rhythm of the day wears on, we get tired, we wake, but somehow the wise are still prepared. And so we see 
even in this parable, that Jesus is saying that readiness is not somehow just propping your eyelids open and fervently waiting until he appears in the sky, but it's actually going about ordinary life. And then Jesus goes on in the next two parables to fill out what this readiness looks like. And we could spend much time looking at them, but just for the sake of time, I'll just summarize. The next parable is the parable of the talents. And the good and faithful servants are those who steward all that their master has given them, right? He entrusts them with resources and they invest them in a way that's in accord with the master's heart And when he returns, they show how they've invested those resources. And so we see in Jesus' teaching that readiness is not just sitting at the door waiting for his arrival. It's the stewardship of all that he has given us for God's glory and toward things that are in accord with the master's heart while he's away. Well, then he goes on to tell about the sheep and the goats. The people who know Jesus, the sheep, They are busy caring for the least of these while Jesus is gone. They're showing love and kindness to the hungry and the thirsty, to the strangers and the naked, to the sick and the imprisoned. And they're surprised to find out how much their life has demonstrated evidence of Christ-like care for the least of these. And so these stories together really show us what the rest of the New Testament teaches us about kingdom readiness. What is it? It's as we go about living our normal, ordinary lives, it's stewarding or using all that God has given us for love of God and for love of neighbor, especially for the least of these. It's living and working and loving wherever you are as those who know the bridegroom and are waiting for his arrival. Jesus closes with these words, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And as we hear those words, we realize in our hearts how easy it is to drift from this kind of daily readiness and watchfulness, isn't it? The tyranny of life, in the midst of this delay, we can become distracted. We can find ourselves growing less and less prepared for his arrival. But he invites us through this story to examine our lives in response to this call to readiness. How do we reorient our lives towards readiness for the bridegroom's arrival? I think we can just think in two simple questions or categories. The first is kingdom readiness makes you intentional about what you already do. Kingdom readiness makes you intentional about what you're already doing. Think of what you do each day and each week. Your current practices and responsibilities. Going to your job, caring for children or for parents, maintaining your home, studying in school, playing sports, time with family, friends, and neighbors, enjoying recreation. Think of all those things and then ask yourself, what would it look like to do those things in a way that's preparing for Jesus' return? How can I do them with an eye toward 
better knowing the bridegroom in those things? How can I view those things as now an opportunity to show his love for the least of these that he is bringing into my life each day? And so we can think about how we can be intentional about what we already do, but then kingdom readiness, secondly, it changes what you do sometimes, doesn't it? Perhaps as you hear Jesus' call to readiness, and as this picture bounces around in your mind, you realize that there may be parts of your life that need to be wisely adjusted. Certain aspects of your life may need to be scaled back to be more prepared. Perhaps you realize that you're consumed with activities that tempt you not to care about Jesus' coming arrival, but instead distract you from it. Maybe you're caught up in just frantically working or constantly scrolling or other pursuits that are just distracting you from the wonder of the bridegroom who loves you and is coming for you one day. Some things need to be scaled back. And then also there could be things that you need to add into your life. Time in the word, hearing the beauty of the bridegroom's voice and his love for you, or growing in connection with the body of Christ, or more time with unsaved neighbors, family, and friends, intentionally going out of your way to move toward the least of of these in love. You see, Jesus invites us to look at our lives, to consider how we're living in the delay of awaiting his return, and to wisely adjust so that our lives are oriented toward his impending arrival. Being unprepared is unpleasant, whether you dream about it or it's a real-life experience. And while this parable, it it certainly taps into that feeling, doesn't it, of this unreadiness, this discomfort, Jesus does this to remind us that when it comes to the most important thing, our eternal destiny and ongoing life in the presence of God, we can be ready, can't we? The wise women in the story knew that the most important the greatest thing was going to be spending time with the bridegroom in the marriage banquet. And they oriented their lives around making sure they were prepared to do that most wonderful thing. And this story is one that just makes us realize how much more we even have in the gospel. We are awaiting the groom's arrival not just as invited guests, but as the very ones who are his bride. The ones that he loved so much that he came and offered his entire self so that we who were hungry and thirsty, we who were estranged and naked, we who were with no resources of our own, the least of these could become his bride could be clothed in his righteousness so that we are prepared in him for that wedding feast. And it's not that we now have to somehow muster up resources or oil of our own, but that love of the bridegroom that is now being poured into our hearts by the Spirit is what changes us day by day 
into people who are more and more living like our Lord Jesus in fits and starts and ready and longing for his appearing. And when he comes, it's not just a few days of a feast, which sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But it is life in the presence of God, in his perfect love forever. And you know what's amazing about it is we're not just waiting for all of that to begin then, but Jesus says it has begun even now when we turn to him in faith. Even though we don't see him now, we love him. And we have faith and hope and are filled with inexpressible joy because we know the bridegroom and he will prepare us to be fully ready for his return. And it's that kind of love, that kind of being known, that leads to a life of readiness. And it's also that kind of love and being known that causes us to move toward the least of these who are in our lives, offering them the wonderful love of the bridegroom so that they can join with us in the marriage feast. May the Lord help us to walk in that readiness until he returns. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded of the wonder of what awaits, but we're also reminded of the wonder of what we have even now, the certainty of knowing Jesus by faith and the salvation that he brings. We pray that you would strengthen us for the delay. We pray that you would keep us from drifting and distraction, that you would move our hearts towards readiness and that you would do that through the wonder of our Savior's love for us and how each day he's meeting us again and again with his grace so that we can become more and more of who we were made to be, your beloved people, fit for fellowship with you forever. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.